Word of the Lord from Romans chapter 9, verse 30, into Romans chapter 10. Someone say amen. Amen. Verse 4. It says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to, say it with me, everyone who believes. You may be seated as I pray. Oh God. Oh God. Help us this morning as we put ourselves under these next verses in your holy word. Help us to not be guilty of committing the same errors that these scriptures speak against. God, help me to speak with a clarity of my mind. Help our time today to be profitable in your presence. And help us to be changed people forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the date was December 12th, 2008 kind of remember where I was. I wonder if you do too. It was a date that forever sent shockwaves across the financial institutions in America. I'm not uh, talking about uh, the financial crisis. This preceded the fall of the stock market. December 12th, 2008, people across America woke up that morning and it was before we had Alexa to tell us the news and before we checked our phones incessantly. In 2008, uh, we were turning on CNN and Fox News and NBC and the Today, you know, the morning show. and Plastered all over the news this day were images of wealthy people who had overnight lost everything in their retirement accounts. Just 12 days after this event, the stock market would crash, but this day, December 12th of 2008, was a monumental seismic shift in the landscape of investments in America, because this was the day when the world found out what a fraud Bernie Madoff had been. I don't know if you remember the story of Bernie Madoff. Uh, He was the uh, decades-long financier who was investing Uh, selective people's money, and ripping them off. The greatest Ponzi's, uh, one one person said it was the mother of all Ponzi schemes, which sounds real bad. Uh, That day on December 12th, the the headlines read, almost $60 billion were gone. 6D, 6-0. Some of you, that's just half of your net worth, that's fine. After a couple of days, the tally came back that it wasn't that bad, actually. It was only $20 billion that had actually been lost. Oh, come on. That's a lot of money. You got that 
change hanging around your house? These were people, hardworking, diligent people who um, lost their entire life's savings. People like uh, Elie Wiesel lost the entirety of his retirement account that was invested with Bernie Madoff, $12 million. He also lost $15 million for his foundation. Elie Wiesel called Madoff one of the greatest liars, criminals, and scoundrels of all time. If you don't know Elie Wiesel, don't forget he had a brush with Hitler. New York Mets owner Fred Wilpon lost a staggering $500 million just like that. Wilpon also introduced uh, his friends to Bernie Madoff, one of which was Larry King. And uh, in re- re- you know, reflection, Larry King said, if he could interview just one person in the world, and one person even of all times, he wouldn't choose Jesus, he wouldn't choose you know, historical. He said, I would interview Bernie Madoff, and I would ask him one simple question. Why? We may have a hard time relating to the ultra-wealthy in their pain, and yet still here were people, real people, banking upon the well-worn paths and practices of investing as a means of accumulating wealth. They were uh, squirreling away, maybe bigger numbers than you and I squirrel away, but still they were squirreling away for the future, for, 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 for down the road, for tomorrow. Uh, pursuing disciplined investment strategies, following the book, looking for the rewards that they were promised at the end of the plan. And one day, just one day, one night, my, how they didn't see it coming. One day, word comes that they had put their faith in the wrong guy. I wish I had a church this morning who knew where I was going with this. They didn't see it coming. And I wonder if the biggest punch in the gut for these ultra-rich people that day is thinking about the fact that uh, here they were, investing long-term with a credible, notorious, selective investor for the wealthy, only to realize that most of middle America, who invested with guys named Edward Jones and Charles Schwab, then had more money than they do. They had all of the privilege, and here they were, none of the rewards. They didn't see it coming. And I wonder, I wonder if uh, it may not be immediately obvious to you, uh, but we've all been there. I mean, we've all had stories of disappointment and surprise wake us up to a hard reality. Uh, we, we maybe haven't lost our entire life's fortune, maybe you have, but we've had CEOs embezzle money and it wreck our companies. Uh, We've had mayors advantage themselves at the cost of the taxpayer, hasn't we? I'm from Illinois. I was a little residual gubernatorial PTSD on my part. (laughs) Lord help us. We've had solid relationships that have been gutted by affairs. We've had tomorrow snatched from our grab, had the floor fall out from underneath us. And the hardest part of it all usually isn't what happened to us, but our sheer surprise, our sheer shock that we didn't see it coming. You talk to um, people who have uh, been on the other side of their spouse having an affair, and and usually it's sorrow, not because they don't still love their spouse, but but sorrow for feeling so foolish that they didn't see the signs that they see now. 
and they didn't see it coming. And that's the picture that Paul gives us right here in Romans chapter 9 all the way through uh, 10 verse 4. Uh, we come to the next verses today. We're starting in verse 30. We've read it into our hearing already. And if you've been tracking with us for the past couple of weeks as we've gone through Romans 9 pretty systematically, um, of course, you know that the people who didn't see it coming, so to speak, that's the title of my message, they didn't see it coming. The people that didn't see it coming were uh, the Jewish people in Paul's day, Israel. Paul writes that they didn't see uh, what was coming that they weren't going to cash in on their spiritual investments because they were investing with the wrong plan. Uh, we join Paul's discussion already in progress here in verse 30 uh, with a question common to the book of Romans. He, Paul has asked this time and time again to provide concluding triggers for us as the reader and as the hearer to say uh, he's concluding a thought. He says, what shall we say then? And every other time Paul asks this question, he backs it up with another question, but not here. Paul is landing the plane as we talk in the pastoral world. He's coming down to a conclusion. He says this, this is what we proclaim. This is what we surprisingly declare. Look at it. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Maybe you're uh, new to Bethel or you're just joining us today and you're jumping in with us and I want to make sure I'm clearly helping you along the way stay up to speed with us. When Paul says uh, the word um, the Jews or Israel, uh, he doesn't mean all the Jews or all of Israel. And we know this is true because Paul himself was a Jew. When Paul says the Gentiles, he doesn't mean every Gentile. He just means it's available to some of the Gentiles. Uh, what I, what I want to say is that Paul is not, um, he's not universalizing these people to say, if you are a Jewish person, you are uh, doomed to not succeed, or if you're a Gentile, you are guaranteed to succeed. He's, he's not universalizing, he's just simply stereotyping, which in our day is not helpful. In Paul's day, this is the way that they were helped. He says, not all in Israel are in peril, and likewise, not all who are Gentiles are safe. And those words if you're not new to church, Jew or Gentile, Israel is just simply the ethnic uh, Jewish people. And Gentile, maybe you read the Harry Potter books, are the mudbloods. Amen? That's another day. I see some of you looking like, oh, what are you going to say, Pastor? That's all right. It's another day. It's another day. We'll talk about C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien later. They didn't, they didn't see it coming. Generally, how Israel has dealt with God has been consistent as a whole. This is Paul's point, is that, that simply right out of the gate, they didn't see their quest for achieving their law that he points out in this verse, that Israel, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They didn't succeed in reaching that law. Their obsession with the law, it blinded their eyes, and they didn't see something coming. Here's what they didn't see. They didn't see the paradox of the law. This is what he wants us to see first. They, they didn't see the paradox of the law. Uh, and one layer we see verse 30 is the first level of a paradox. You know, a paradox, a seemingly contradictory statement or a statement so outrageous it can't possibly be true. Uh, he says this, that the Gentiles didn't seek after righteousness, yet they possessed righteousness. And the Jews sought after a law that led to righteousness, but they never got to that law. 
Y'all aren't with me. I can see you glazing over, so let me put it in words that you can understand them. What I'm saying is that one guy had all the money, the moves, the looks, the pedigree, and the fast car. And that guy tried to get the girl. But she looked over and saw average Joe with a rusty pickup truck and a pure heart. And she fell in love with him instead. What I'm saying is there's a paradox here. On the surface, the paradox is that one group of amateurs stumbled upon a treasure, while another group of professional treasure hunters using sophisticated methods came up empty. It sounds absurd. It's, it's, it's a paradox. And what I said was that it's a paradox of the law, of the law. The law in itself contains this paradox. We've got to watch the text here. I want you to dig into your Bible, look in your Bible in front of you. The grammar of Romans 9 is super specific, and it all hinges on the way that Paul uses this word righteousness. He uses it, uh, my, by my count right now, three times in these two verses. Um, look at how he uses it. Uh, he says, for the Gentiles, it was righteousness whose source was faith. You see that right there? A righteousness that is, everybody say, by faith. It's the source of their righteousness is faith. How did the Gentiles achieve it? Well, by faith. But in contrast to that, verse 31, Israel pursued a law, a law that would lead to righteousness, which is to say that righteousness whose source was not faith but law-keeping. To get true righteousness, which Paul makes sure we recognize as righteousness by faith, all you need is faith. And yet the Jewish version, they pursued righteousness whose source was keeping the law. And to get that righteousness, all you have to do is be perfect in keeping the law. And Paul says in verse 31, what we all already know, when we've tried to keep our own law, they couldn't do it. Amen? You all try to be good, right? January 1st rolls around, you, you, you set a new law for yourself. You say, I'm going to cut out Oreos. I'm going to spend money on the gym. That'll get me there. I'm going to automate my savings. That'll keep me from spending everything. And how many of you, show of hands, please, because I don't want to be left up here alone. How many of you uh, have broken a New Year's resolution by February? Yeah, we, we can't keep our own laws, man, let alone God's. So here's the paradox of the law. Listen, listen, so quickly. This is the, this is the point. You can understand how to attain something only to obsess over obtaining it. And in doing so, never get it. You can understand with your mind how to achieve something. And then with your mind, think that it's up to you to achieve it, even though your mind tells you it's not up to you. And you obsess over, what do I have to do to get that? And in the obsession of, what do I have to do to become good enough for that, you end up losing the thing that you were going for all along in the first place. Here's what that looks like. I remember once playing Pictionary with a friend of mine uh, about a decade ago. We were just out of college. He went to uh, NIU in Illinois uh, to be an art major. He was a really good artist. And I thought, great, Dave's on my team. He's, he's going to be a Pictionary genius. And um, Dave was up against uh, someone, some there's like guys against girls, and Dave was up, and I was like, game over. We got Dave. Like, Dave's got his master's degree in painting, let alone drawing. And the timer flips over, and um, once that timer flipped over, I realized that we weren't secure. We were doomed because what Dave was trained to do was start 
sketching outlines and wireframes. And, and, and Dave started with the backdrop of what I can only imagine was a beautiful portrait that he was going to um, paint for us. Uh, the problem with that is that, I don't know if you ever played Pictionary. Pictionary is a game of speed. And the other team, who I think had a Bible degree, not a painting degree, simply drew a stick figure and an arrow and they won. And we realized that you can be so professional at something that you become so meticulous in how you approach it that you fail to do the simple thing that that professional thing is teaching you to do in the, in the first place, which is communicate. You can be so good at something. And it was the hack, the simple one, not the, not the professional one who had the faster route to the prize. Friends, here's what I'm saying. You can try too hard with God. Let that sit over you for a second. It is possible in your life to put all of your trust, not by faith in God, but in your trying for God. This was what led the Israelites or the, 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 the Jewish people to miss the paradox of the law. The paradox of the law is that you can try too hard. They, they, they heard that law-keeping was a way to righteousness, so they went all in on rules and customs and behaviors and morality. They missed the simple fact that the law is a limited means to an unlimited end. What I mean is this. The law is a limited means. It depends on human perfection to an unlimited end, which is the guarantee of divine perfection. And it's possible today to be so hypercritical in your relationship with Jesus. Oh, God, help us. You need to listen to this, some of us. It's possible, myself included, to be so hypercritical in our relationship with God that we mechanicalize our connection to God to the point where we study and analyze and, and evaluate where we are, where we gotta be better, how can we become more efficient in our prayer life, how can we sneak more Bible and how can we understand the Greek words a little bit better, how can we make sure we're a little bit more theologically astute, how about we're a little bit better? And uh, you, can, you can be so mechanical in your relationship with God that you lose anything relational and all you're left with is a critic. Like in The Greatest Showman, that line, you've probably seen that movie, that line that Barnum says to the newspaper reporter. He says, a theater critic who can't find joy in the theater. Now who's the fraud? We ought not be God-fearing people who do not ourselves enjoy God. Today's critics spend their time analyzing the theology of others. They condemn church, churches that someone attends. They condemn Bible versions that someone else uses to read scriptures. Uh, they pick apart songs of worship for failing to measure up to their own subjective standards. They have no imagination for the beauty of God outside their own little critical world. If you profess to be a Christian, but your Christianity has been reduced to a bunch of lists of do's and don'ts, friends, you are chasing a law that you think leads to righteousness, but in the end, Paul says, you will fail to reach even that. If we read on, the picture becomes clear. We see how this kind of hits our home a little, a little closer. Notice verse 32. I want to keep moving. He says, he explains this. He says, why? Don't you love, don't you love Romans? You just got to read it, and Paul will guide you through it. He goes, I know you're asking this. Well, how is that possible? He goes, why? Well, because they did not pursue it. Everybody say it with me. By faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
And here's what Paul shows us next. Not only did they not see the paradox of the law, but they didn't see the person of the law. They didn't see the person of the law. Israel did the right thing in the wrong way. And so when they hit up against the one thing that you can't get around, which is the stumbling stone that God had laid in Zion, they were tripped up, stuck against the rock. They couldn't get over it. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And if you're a theology nerd like me, maybe you've heard that phrase before. Uh, you kind of know what that means. But if, if, you're, um, if you're new here, I want to help, help you out with that. Um, Paul gives us, in verse 32, uh, two quotations from Isaiah. This isn't really the same exact um, direct quotations, but there's sort of a remix, a mashup of two different prophecies in Isaiah that he sort of puts together for our help. And we got to know them to figure out what this means. I'll put these on the screen for you. Isaiah 8, God tells Israel that the Lord of hosts will be their strong sanctuary. And he will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. In uh, Isaiah 28, verse 16, uh, we read this. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. You get that, those five things? I've laid as a foundation a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation. Here's the result. Whoever believes will not be literally put to shame or in haste. Paul pulls from both of these verses in Isaiah to make the point that God has determined, as only a master builder can determine, which stone was going to be the cornerstone for that which he was building among his people. And from the cornerstone would emerge the plumb lines, the level lines, in all directions the building would take their cues from the cornerstone. I love the story of this building. I wasn't around when this happened. Many of you weren't around either. Um, I think Pastor Fisher would forgive me if he heard, heard me telling this story. Uh, but when, when Central Baptist Church set out to um, build this building, there was a builder. Uh, no one from the church did this, but there was a builder who was looking at the stakes in the ground to figure out what the surveyor had said for the elevation of our building. And uh, legend has it that one of the builders maybe had a long night, maybe, I don't know, I don't know how the building word goes, but um, looked at the wrong stake and set the entire foundation of our gym and that long hallway one foot too low. <laughs> you ever wonder why there's a ramp there? Someone messed up. I mean, thank God it's never really caused any problems except for five years ago. Uh, but I, I bring that out to illustrate the point that how you start a building matters. Master builders would find, they'd start with the cornerstone. They would look for the stake in the ground. And while we in our own uh, strivings and imperfections are prone to put our faith upon the wrong cornerstones, cornerstones that look like we can build our life upon, cornerstones like um, good jobs and good colleges and good careers, cornerstones like making a lot of money or having good kids, cornerstones like looking like moral people, cornerstones like voting for the next right president. Though whatever your cornerstone is that you think your life will go better if you place your trust upon that thing, that's your cornerstone. And what God wanted to say to Israel was, enough of your cornerstones. I'm the master builder. 
builder who never messes up. And I've got a stone that none of you would have picked out because it's a little weird looking. It's a little off. You, you can't figure out the angles of this cornerstone because they're beyond your comprehension, but I got it. I know how I'm going to use this stone in a perfect way so that it builds up my glory to the fullest extent and it causes those who think they can build their own house upon my house to stumble over themselves. Amen. Said that they didn't know the person of the law. You say, Dan, this sounds a lot more like a, a, a rock class than it does a person here. What, who's the person? Well, Paul helps us with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, he tells us that it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And what does that, that yield? A stumbling block to Jews and follies to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone for our faith. And yet so many people trip up on Jesus, don't they? Have you had that moment where you've tested this out? You used to hear pastors say this all the time. Like, Go ahead and be a deist. Believe in God. Believe in a higher power. You can even today be spiritual, and it's okay. But uh, Thanksgiving's coming up, and you're not going to have any tension in your family. That was a joke. Because, <laughs> listen, we all got it. Uh, if you just want to see where things stand, just start talking about Jesus at the table. You will see quickly who's tripping and who's praising, right? You will find out immediately. Why? Why does that happen? Because God designed Christ to be the insurmountable obstacle that you and I cannot get over. That's what it means to be a stumbling stone, something you can't get over. You got a lot of stuff in your life that you stumble on. We got a lot of things in our life that we can't get over. I want that new car, but I can't get over the price of it. You want to date that guy, but you can't get over his reputation. This is, spiritually speaking, we want to be close to God, but we can't get over Jesus by our own works. And so you and I may have stumbled over Jesus before, and why? It's because he told us to repent, and we didn't think we had anything so bad in our lives that we needed forgiveness for. And our honest assessment of ourselves is, I'm better than that guy. Oh, come on, you guys are leaving me hanging like crazy. <laughs> right? Is there anybody in this church who's ever had an honest thought in their life? <laughs> God thinks I'm not like Don. This guy? Right? Actually, Don, I, I love you, man. I don't wanna, I'm going to be like Don when I grow up. But uh, you've had that thought. Of all the billions of people in the world, I, mean, I don't want to brag, but top 5% maybe? Yeah. Shoot, dude, you know how much I give to the church? Do you know what I've done with my life? Do you know what I don't watch on TV? I'm fine. And then here's Jesus saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and you go, repent for What? Surely, you're not worried about that one time that I cheated on a test. Surely, you're not worried about that one time that me and my girlfriend went too far. 
Surely, surely you're not mad about that one time that I uh, got drunk and did some stupid things. Surely, God, that was, I mean, there's people that do worse things than me. I'm not in jail. And the moment that we self-justify, we are tripping over the stumbling stone. I mean, I got so much to say today and so little time. It doesn't matter, friends, how good you are. You and I are missing the mark because the person of the law is our standard. You, know why, you want to know why you trip over Jesus? It's because Jesus actually lived the perfect life. And when there's someone in the world who is actually perfect, it doesn't matter who you are, when you are put side by side with that person, you fall down. That's the picture. The Jewish people did not fall down at the feet of Jesus because they didn't see that he was the person that the law was pushing them towards, the person who had fulfilled the law. And they didn't see that because they didn't see the plan of the law. And that's what Paul pushes us to here in chapter 10, verse 1. And congratulations, you made it out of Romans 9 alive. <laughs> Let's read this together. They didn't see the, the paradox of the law and the person of the law. Likewise, they didn't see the plan of the law. It says this, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It sounds so much, if you remember a couple weeks ago when we started in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, a lot like what Paul says. He says, I'm telling the truth. My soul bears witness inside of me that, that I love my people and I wish that I would be accursed. I would be damned if they could go to heaven. The exchange that Paul is willing to make for his friends and his family is outrageous. And he has such a heart for his people. This is not just throwing shade. This is not some anti-Semitism. This is true compassion and grace and love. And he says they're genuine in their desire for God. Do you see that in verse 2 up there? He says that, that they have a zeal for God. They were hungry for God. They were open to the things of God. But look at what Paul says. They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There are two Old Testament allusions that we see here. Proverbs 19.2 tells us that desire without knowledge is not good. And then and remember that moment when God speaks finally in the book of Job? Remember that moment when Job and his friends are complaining, trying to figure out why, Job, is your life so miserable right now? What's going on? It's certainly, Job, that you've got sin in your life. You're hanging out with the wrong people. You're doing the wrong things. God's favor has been taken off of you. You should just uh, curse God and die. And then finally, after all of their theories, which is like the most frustrating read in the Bible. You thought Leviticus was frustrating? Job is frustrating. Uh, after all their theories, God comes out. And what does he say? He says, who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? The knowledge that we need to understand the purpose and the plan of God's law comes from relationship with God. And this is, what, this is what he tells us here. Without knowledge, we too will fall into the same strap. We're going to try and seek their own righteousness. You see that? They, they sought to establish their own. My, how dangerous it is for us when we try to set the bar for righteousness in our own life. When we try to be the subjective standard that all things must bend their knee towards. There are only two types of righteousness in the world, and this passage pushes us towards discovering them. There's, there's first self-righteousness, which is subjective, and there's God's righteousness, 
which is objective. The two ought to meet in a very specific way. And if you want to build your faith upon a Ponzi scheme, establish your own righteousness by keeping your own law. Like, go ahead. Be diligent in the days of measuring your morality and your philosophy. Pretend that you're in control of uh, God's justice in your life. I mean, fly your plane to the gates of heaven and try and taxi up that runway yourself. In those days, Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not for you? And I will look at them and say, depart from me. For you did all those things without knowledge is a paraphrase of what Jesus says. They didn't understand the plan of the law. And we know the plan of the law because we've already seen it in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Do you remember that verse? I'm going to put it on the screen. This is the plan of the law. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of what? Yeah, pastors don't like to say that word, so we make you say it. Of sin. The, the plan of the law is not knowledge of our own righteousness, but knowledge of our own unrighteousness. When we understand how actually wicked and sinful our heart's desires are, only then can we have established a, re- a righteousness in our life that is built upon the relationship we have with God, not upon our own efforts. God gave us the law so that we might have a mirror to see just how rebellious our hearts actually are. And so when we take the law to be our righteousness, we lose sight of our need for God. We won't just be doing the right things in the wrong way. When we lose sight of uh, how God wants us to do this, we'll be doing the wrong things the right way. You'll figure that out tomorrow. It brings me to the end of Paul's argument here, ultimately, that while Israel's law-keeping and self-justifying behavior was out of a sincere desire for God, they didn't see the paradox of the law. They didn't see the person of the law. They didn't see the plan of the law. And ultimately, they didn't see the possibilities of the law. And here's what I mean. That the Jewish people knew that the law, God's law, God's commandments were given specifically to them. It was theirs, not anyone else's. They were superior amongst all the people. They were the religious elite amongst the nations. They were supreme in the land. The law promised in their future a blessed kingdom of chosen and special people who were better than the rest of the world. The law was their salvation, not anyone else's. And so watch this as Paul in just a few words is going to pull the rug out from underneath anyone who believes that being a good person is the way to be saved. Watch this, verse 4. He says this so plainly, so clearly, and I want to I preach this until the day I die. He says, for Christ, can you say this all with me? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's both incredible and unbelievable at the same time. The Jews believed God's law was their salvation and would never fade away. And yet God's plan and purpose, Jesus, was the end of the law for righteousness. That is to be acceptable and clean before God, to have a relationship with him. It means that in Jesus, the law of sin and death loses its power. And the law of life no longer depends on human effort. Hallelujah. And this is precisely what Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, this truth. He said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. It's the word of God. I have not come to abolish them. Two times he says it. But to fulfill them. How did he fulfill the law? How did he end the law for righteousness? (laughs) 
He did it by being the truly righteous person who was hung on an unrighteous cross. He did it by being the truly righteous human that lived amongst the most unrighteous humanity. He did it by being the truly righteous Savior who reached out and touched unrighteous us. He did it by embodying in himself all the characters and attributes and uh, special blessings of the law. And he lived them out so that when he died, he could die for our unrighteousness. How did he end the law? He ended the law because only as God could end the thing that he started in the first place. He ended it as he is God. This is miraculous for us. This is why the life of Jesus, I think, matters more than just being a preamble to his death. So many Christians, they look at the red letters of Jesus as like the most inspired words in the Bible, and they're important. But they look at them as like good advice to live by. And they don't recognize that in every single one of those words of Jesus is the law dripping out of his mouth in its purest form. That his life lived here with his people as he did miracles and healed. And even as he apparently contradicted the law by healing on Sabbaths, he was fulfilling the law by his work in this life. And he told us, he said, a new command I give you, that you love God and you love one another. And so in fulfillment of the old law and the new law, Jesus showed us his love on the cross. But here's a real twist. They didn't see the possibility of the law, not just that it could be fulfilled, not just that the law would have an end date, not just that the law would be broken as a curse over us, The real twist and the possibility of the law that they didn't see coming was that the blessings of the law would be extended to people outside of their own family. All right, so uh, they didn't realize the blessings of the law in Jesus' death was that it was like God's life insurance policy for humanity. And if your name is written as a beneficiary, you didn't die for it, but you got what came from it. They didn't realize that in the preciousness of that law, that when Jesus died on the cross, he was satisfying not just God's wrath for the Jewish people, but for all people, which is incredible news for both you and me because, y'all, I'm Norwegian. (laughs) And what are you? At some point we say American. Man, I didn't have nothing to lean on. Nothing but the righteousness of Jesus who made it possible, possible by fulfilling the law that everyone who believes in him shall be saved. And they didn't see it coming. So when all of a sudden there's a movement of God amongst even the barbarians, even the lowest class of people in their society who are not of Jewish blood, and they were turning to God and numbers and looking to Jesus and saying we are saved by faith the Jewish people got even more arrogant and even more prideful they resisted that dynamic because why they didn't realize who Jesus was or what Jesus did 
And doesn't this bring us back around to Romans 9, verse 30? How the Gentiles get righteousness that they weren't seeking. And how do they get it? By faith. And that the Jewish people strove so hard, professionally seeking after God, trying to measure up to the law, and what did they lose? They lost the law. So we ought to thank God in our lives every day we wake up because we didn't see him coming either. And yet while we weren't looking for him, didn't he come to you? I mean, isn't that your testimony? You you were stuck in a way of life that was probably empty, but it's what you chose, most of us. You You were stuck trying to figure out how to get out of the trap, try to get out of the house, try to get out of the situation. Some of us, we're honest. <laughs> we like the trap. Y'all, y'all didn't hear me. We liked our sin. We became addicted to it. We poured all our money into it. We would scheme our ways to get more of it. And while we were so hyperly, hyper-focused and obsessed upon our sin... One day out of nowhere, you didn't see it coming, but you realized, someone was told you, that Jesus came and invaded your space. And how did he do it? He did it because he had already fulfilled the law and offered you grace. And if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, it don't matter where you're from, what you've done, who you are, you shall be saved. So what do you do? Nothing. the paradox of the law. The law is built to make us strive, and our strivings fall short and stumble over the rock and finally see the plan for the law and see that in that plan of the law, there is an unrealized potential in that law that when Jesus fulfills it, it means I get God, all of him. Amen. I love the surprise of Jesus. We ought to feel the possibilities of of eternity that exist for us now that we are no longer under the law of sin, but the law of grace through faith. And we ought to cry out in thankfulness to the Father that in his plan, he planned to include us. I was putting my kids to bed last night, and I watched as um, I was gone the whole week. uh, I was in Florida suffering for Jesus. And... um, when I'm gone a lot, I like to hang out with my kids more frequently than I did, and I was trying to put Graham to bed, and he was, he was really wanting mama, and that was okay. Uh, it was cute. I, I watched as uh, I said, Graham, you want me to put you to bed? He goes, no, I want mama, and, and Kristen was on her knees uh, next to him, and he did that thing that kids do, two-year-olds, uh, two-year-olds who don't know any better. He just reached up with his arms, and he clung his arms around Kristen's neck, And with all of his might, he tried to pick himself up to be put in her lap, and all she had to do was kind of just lean back a little bit. And there he was, fully suspended, embraced in the safe arms of his mama. And it reminded me that nothing that kid has done has made her want to do that. Like We don't love that kid any more today than we did the day that he was born. I understand him more. I have more hopes for him. But I can't tell you that my love for him is deeper than it's ever been. It's always been down to the core of the earth deep. And there's this innocence there in his relationship with his mom that, that 
is so simple. He's not a sophisticated human. He's a child. Adults are sophisticated. You are sophisticated. Sophistication messes us all up, doesn't it? Gets you in your head, makes you do crazy things. Have you ever been in a committed relationship with somebody and it stopped and you wondered why and you wondered, I never want to be hurt like that again and then you found someone you wanted to be in a relationship with? Didn't you step into that new relationship a little bit guarded, a little bit arm's distance, a little bit sophisticated? Adults, we try and manipulate relationships with what I can get from you and what you can give to me. Adults today have a whole world of experience causing insecurities inside their head. A little kid, he's just got mama. This is why I said, I think Jesus said in Matthew 28, something that nobody really saw coming. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn And he doesn't say become religious, but I think that's how we operate. Matthew 28, 3 does not say, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become religious, you will not see the kingdom of God. Matthew 23 does not say, unless you turn and become moral, you will not see the kingdom of God. Matthew 28, verse 3 does not say, unless you turn and become gospel-centered in your singing. Just fill in the blank with your... If you don't do Jen Wilkins studies, unless you turn and do Beth Moore studies, unless you turn and do whatever. No, here's what Jesus says. Unless you turn and become like a child, you will not see the kingdom of God. Why? Because adults are always trying to scheme and angle our relationship. That's the curse of the law. Kids just wrap their arms around their parents' neck and give them a hug. And they rest secure and safe, having done nothing to earn that love. And friends, here's, the, here's, here's where it's at. You got to quit it. The thing in your heart that tries to whisper that God can't love you because you do or don't, you got to turn it off. Become like a child, innocent in our thinking, uh, simple in our relationship with him. To become like a child and just simply say, God, I know you love me and there's nothing I could do or not do that would ever cause you to love me more. And so, God, take all of me and rest. What shall we say to these things? The Gentiles, who did not seek after righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. Why? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who work really doggone hard and show the world how much they love God. No. For all who By faith, believe.